Okay, good to see you all this morning. The Lord be with you. Good to have you in our house. The kingdom of God is nothing if it is not a place of friendship. And uh, I have been blessed with many wonderful friends uh, in this community and around the country. One of them is my dear friend, Dr. Chris Green, who I've known for about 15 years or so. Some of you will remember Chris Green. He came and preached for us last year when we were in the middle of our series on the book of Ruth. And it was honestly one of a handful of moments I can think of in my life where I watched the kingdom of God break in actively while the sermon was happening. It was just incredible. I, uh, I have so much respect for Chris Green. He's got Pentecostal roots, but he's like a world-class theologian. And uh, that means that he fits right in around here. You know what I'm talking about? And so I'm glad to have Chris Green with us. He wrote the foreword to Streams in the Wasteland, which I think are actually, those are actually the best words in the book. And, uh, but we're grateful to have him here on the third Sunday of Advent. New Life East, would you please give a very warm welcome to my dear friend, Dr. Chris Green. Good morning. I was thinking about that 15-year friendship. One of the things that's striking about it was quickened to me this morning is just over those 15 years, at really crucial moments of change in my life, Andrew, we were in the room together talking about the change we knew was coming or talking without realizing the change was coming. And I'm here again this morning, as I've shared with you. I feel like my wife and I are experiencing some kind of transition we don't fully understand yet. But I'm glad to be with you when that's happening because God in the past has shown that your friendship in those moments is important for me. So thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And it's good to be here with you. I had a great time. COVID completely destroyed my sense of time. So I can't... When was that last year? Yeah, like October maybe. Okay. So not terribly long ago, but it's good to see some of you again, some of you for the first time. Sorry about the ring. I need to get this. You're good. Am I good? Okay. So I'm going to jump right in. This is my grandmother's Bible. My dad gave it to my grandmother when I was four years old. I did, of course, realize it at the time. I, I know that because I read the front of the book and recognized what my, my dad had said to her. And I've been preaching from this Bible since I was eight or nine years old. And if you thumb through it now, you can see notes that my grandmother made. Nan, I called her. She was an old school, sweaty Pentecostal, right? They're, they're charismatics. Charismatics don't sweat, right? They're, they're caught up in the joy and the sweetness of God. There's a, a kind of sprightliness to the charismatic life, but old school Pentecostals, it, it's sweaty. It's, it, you look like you've been in a bar fight when you leave church. Like that, that's how you know you've been to a Pentecostal church. My grandmother was, she wore hair piled up in a beehive on her head. She had all the looks of those old school Pentecostals, but secretly she loved basketball, specifically the NBA, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and she loved me. And that's pretty much it, I think, at the, at the end of the day. Not, not really. She was a delightful person. In, she had that Groucho Marx anointing in that she could say something mean to you and you thought it was the most wonderful thing in the world. And so I, I, was, I was very, very close with her. And when I, when I knew I was going to be speaking this weekend and I saw the text that I was going to be addressing... This came back to me, but I need to share it from this Bible and her story as a kind of frame for what these texts have to say to us. So I had planned on that, and then on Friday morning, I spoke Friday night at the Friday night at North, and when I woke up Friday morning, this image from my youth when I was four or five years old came back to me, 
of her doing laundry outside. So she, she had a washing machine and a dryer, but she would often do laundry outside anyway in a wash basin and then hang the clothes up to, to dry. And I have this very vivid memory, four or five years old, of being out there with her. And for whatever reason, I haven't thought about that in I don't know how long. Friday morning I woke up and that's the first thing that was on my mind. And today, Andrew, when you were praying, you talked about the Spirit washing us. And I said Friday night, and I'll say it again tonight, what I want us to do is let these texts wash us. Let, let them soak in us. We're going to read Isaiah 35 and Matthew 11. We're going to compare the story of Isaiah to the story of John the Baptist. But I just want you to sit in it, soak in it. Let the soap kind of work over you. Let the Spirit rub you the wrong way, maybe, agitate you. Right? My job at the end is just to wring you out and leave you hanging. Right? That's where Jesus ended up, so you'll be in a good place. Right? So let's start. Isaiah 35, from the good King James. It's funny because I, I cut my teeth on this, the King James. So even now when I'm giving lectures or talking in conversation and I quote the Bible, I'll quote King James. I love this particular rendering of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Interestingly, the Septuagint, which is the Greek Here's the, the theologian side of me talking for just a moment. This is a footnote. Those of you who don't want to read footnotes, just ignore me for the next 30 seconds. In the Greek translation, this is from Hebrew. This translation is from Hebrew. But in Greek, it actually says not strengthen the weak and confirm the feeble, but weak ones strengthen one another and feeble ones strengthen one another. Fascinating. So either way, we need to be strengthened, whether we have strength to share or we are weak and think we have no strength to share. We're still called to share it. In God, weakness is weak and strength is weak. And yet we strengthen one another. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Now, Isaiah 34, which we're not going to read, is this terribly imposing, terrifying image of God coming in vengeance against all the nations and his sword dripping with the blood of all of those he slaughters. So when Isaiah 35 says God comes with vengeance, that's the image you seem to have evoked. The God who sets himself against all of the wicked. And yet, notice what happens here in Isaiah 35. Your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. But this happens over and over and over again in scripture in which you get a word of judgment that is suddenly reversed into a word of mercy. That the judgment of God is threatened, but when the threat comes, it turns out to have been a promise. Hidden inside of that harshness was a sweetness. Hidden inside that impending doom was the blossoming of the rose. 
Right? And this happens again in Isaiah 35. He will come and save you. And this is what salvation will look like. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. This is a terrible vengeance. Because it's a vengeance against what has destroyed your life. Right. Not against you. Right. God is not against you. God is against everything that is against you. Including your worst habits, your worst instincts, your fears, your ungodly ambitions, everything in you that's not truly you, he's against. Now, when he comes against that that is against you, sometimes it feels like he's against you, but you can trust his vengeance. Just like his ways are not our ways, his vengeance is not our vengeance. You can trust the wrath of God to be nothing but the fury of his love for you. And so he says, when I come with vengeance, the blind eyes will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Our God is a God who makes the impossible possible, right? Streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons. Now, lesser translations say jackals, but I'm sticking with dragons. In the habitation of dragons, here be dragons, where each lay. So you've got a host of dragons. Right there, where the dragons are, shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. Where the dragons were, a highway shall be. A way that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. You see that in the translation? The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. Now, lesser translations, that's, that's a joke. I mean, other translations will try to solve that problem by saying the ungodly do not pass over it. But the text literally says that the way of holiness will not be passed by the unclean, but it shall be for those. Now, how can it be a way in which the unclean do not pass and it be a way for them? Because it's a way that cleanses them. This is a road on which the unclean do not walk because the walking cleanses them. God is a God who only loves sinners. That's all there is to love. But he loves us in such a way that he does not leave us to our sins. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err. Even a fool won't stumble on this road because of what the road is. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beasts shall go there, thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy. Everlasting joy, not joy that bursts up and then disappears again, but everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is Isaiah's ode to joy. This is also almost certainly his swan song. Isaiah is, is a poet who sings of joy, who sings of the good news, but his life is a hard life. His calling, all of us know his calling. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The, the glory of God, the train of his robe fills, fills the temple. The posts shake. But, of course, the calling he receives is to go and speak to a people who will not listen. And so I, Isaiah spends 50 to 60 years 
prophesying to people who do not hear, who reject what he's saying. And he experiences highs and lows, of course, as we all do, but his prophecies do not work. And in the end, he gets sawn in two, gets cut in two in Jerusalem. As Jesus said, that's where the prophets die, in Jerusalem. This, this song, his swan song slash ode to joy, is a song about the ways God makes, the end of which are everlasting joy. So what keeps Isaiah on the road all of his life is at the end of this road, sorrow and sighing will flee away. We used to sing a song in that old sweaty church I grew up in, just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away. And there was a point in my life, if you'd caught me 15 years ago, I would have been sharply critical of that because there is a kind of escapism in that song, a kind of what matters is the sweet by and by, what matters is the next world, not this one. But now that I'm 46 and I have three kids, one in college, now that I've had the struggles that I've had as a pastor and as a teacher with my own health, I, I hear that just a few more weary days a little differently than I did when I was 25 and 30. I, I still won't know part of the escapism. I'm not looking to fly away from anything. But I would like some relief from the weariness every now and then. And I do want the hope that at some point there's everlasting joy. A joy that doesn't just spring up but lasts. That there is an end to the weariness. And that's what Isaiah, Isaiah holds to. And of course, those of you who know Scripture well know that this image of the highway along which the righteous pass, being made righteous as they walk it, recalls Psalm 84. Psalm 84, the, in our hearts are the highways to Zion, right? And we pass through Baca, the, the place of weeping, and we make that place a spring moving toward the city, moving toward the joy of the Lord, and we move from strength to strength. Now again, there was a point in my life when I heard from strength to strength as God always wants me to live this victorious, joyful, powerful life. And so from moving from strength to strength at one point in my life sounded like God saying, in every season you will be strong. But now I hear it differently. And what I hear is not moving from one moment of vitality to another moment of vitality, not from one moment of laughter and peace to a moment of even greater peace and more boisterous laughter. Now I hear moving from what I thought was strength to what he reveals to be truly strength. Moving from my own vitality to his, from my ways to his ways. Soren Kierkegaard, I'm sure if there is a church in Colorado Springs where he gets quoted, it's this one. So I'm going to reference him, just assuming you know who he is. That is a compliment, Andrew, I promise. In, between good friends, you can't always tell what is a compliment and what is not. But this is, it is in, in fact a compliment. That he says in one of his works on faith that we make the road by walking it. We make the road by walking it. And he says the, the walk of faith is made by how you live it. We make the road by walking it. But what I want to suggest is that Isaiah is suggesting the road makes you as you walk it. That God has prepared a way where the dragons were that ends in everlasting joy and singing where sorrow and sighing flee away forever. But you've got to walk the whole road to come to that end. 
And the road will make you, but you've got to stay on it. And faith is just the staying on it. It's just one step in front of the other, trusting not that you're going to figure it out, not that you're going to get better at doing this, but that the road will affect you. I don't think we get better at being Christian. I don't think that as you mature and as your faith ripens, I don't think you get better at it, but I think you get made more and more in the image of Christ in ways you can never quite catch up to. You are getting holier, but precisely because you are, you would never think of it in those terms. You're more aware of what is yet to be done. And so as we make this move, as we walk this road, it's making us. So with that said, I want to come to Matthew 2. Matthew 11, verse 2. Everybody still with me? Everybody okay? And again, I'll be reading from the King James. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So John hears the works of Christ and then asks this question. Now notice, the question doesn't come from not hearing about the works. The text does not say, John, having heard nothing about what was happening with Jesus, sent someone to find out. It says he hears all of these stories about Jesus' works, and out of his hearing of those works, he asks this question. He sends his disciples to ask, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto him, Go, unto them, go and shew John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Do you recognize that? That's what Isaiah said God's vengeance is going to bring about. That this, this is the place of dragons. God is going to make a way, and on that way, we're going to see these signs. Blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then Jesus says this, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What an odd thing to say right then. Blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me. So think about this. In 590... At St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, our brother Gregory, Gregory the Great, we'll just call him Pastor Greg, Pope Gregory the Great slash Pastor Greg is preaching on the third Sunday of Advent from this text, not in King James, unfortunately, he he had to use Latin, lesser translation, and he's preaching from this text, and he comes to this line and says, why does Jesus say, don't be offended in me? How can you be offended when the blind eyes are being opened and deaf ears are being opened and the lame are leaping and the poor are having the gospel preached to them? He says, that's to be admired. That's to be celebrated. How can that be offensive? And Gregory says, they're not going to be offended by the miracles he he does. They're not going to be offended by the fact that he does all of these signs. They're going to be offended by the fact that the one who can do those signs ends hanging on a cross outside the city. The offense is not in the works of Christ. It's in his willingness to lay those works down. It's in his willingness to cease from doing the miracles. I could call legions of angels, but I won't. 
I could come down from this cross, but I won't. I could let this cup pass from me, but I won't. That's the offense. And he is here, Gregory says, Pastor Greg, he's foretelling what he's going to do on the other side of these miracles. And as they departed, so these two disciples come to Jesus to ask on behalf of John. Jesus gives him this answer that is no answer. I mean, that's the thing about Jesus. He's annoyingly indirect. No less in my life than in the Gospels. And as they departed, Jesus talks to the multitudes. But he says it so those departing too will overhear it. Right? So as they're walking away, Jesus kind of lifts his voice and everybody knows, okay, this is for them. He's just saying it to us so they'll hear it. I mean, this is parenting 101. Parents talk to each other so their kids, kids will hear them, right? As they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness? What did Isaiah, where, where does the spring spring up? Where are the streams? What did you go out into the wasteland or the wilderness or the desert to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. They're in king's houses. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. More than a prophet. More than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The Father speaking of the Son, I'm sending a messenger who will reveal your face. Not your hands, not your works, but your person, your face. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's the greatest of men born of women. He's not to be compared with the least in the kingdom. What do we do with this? What do we do with the first with the fact that John is asking this question? Are you the one, or should we look for another? Remember, when we first meet John, he's still a baby. He's still a dream in his mother's belly. And when Jesus and Jesus' mom walk in the room together, what does John do inside his mother's womb? He recognizes Jesus and leaps for joy, just as we're told we all will do when we come to the end of the road. So notice this. John the Baptist has experienced the end from before he's even born. John has already had that song of Isaiah springing up in him before he's cognizant of anything. And then the next time we see him, he's, has the, he's captivated the attention of the whole nation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's the one who recognizes Jesus when Jesus comes down to those muddy waters. He's the one who says, behold the Lamb of God. He's the one who's bold enough to defy Herod. So how is it that that man, the greatest born of women, that man who before he even had language, before he could even see, before he could even speak, had already recognized Jesus intuitively, his spirit was so harmonized with Jesus that his infant body, his as a fetus, he's already celebrating. How does that man come to ask this question? 
First, possibly, there's a clue earlier in the story. Does this interest you? I hope it interests a few of you because this is where I'm going. Like, how does this man doubt? I mean, it's one thing for me to ask. It's another thing for him to ask. Are you the one? John is the one who sent before his face. How can he be asking? So maybe, maybe we should have read the story earlier a little more closely. You remember what he said about Jesus? There is one coming after me who is mightier than I, and I am not worthy. And that should have arrested us. Because our God is not a God who shows his worth by making us seem worthless. Our God does not exalt himself at our expense. God does not show his glory in contrast with us. He doesn't humiliate us in order to show his power. Our God is humble. He shows his humility by serving us. I am among you, Jesus said, as one who serves. So when John says, I am not worthy, we might hear some piety. We might hear what we would recognize as holiness. But in God's ears, that's false. You're made worthy, John, by him coming near to you. And I'm I'm struck by the fact that Peter does something very similar. You remember in John 13, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. And what does Peter say? That's not for me. You can't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. And what's the very next thing that happens with Peter? He denies Christ. Because there's something, I, I think for many of us, it's not so much that we doubt God. We doubt ourselves. And we can't believe what God says is true about us is actually true. But doubting yourself is a form of doubting God. And when, you are, when you're unsure that you are in fact worthy, that's not a sign that you've recognized the worthiness of God. It's that you don't realize this God is one who makes you worthy by being near you. That's right, that's right. Self-doubt is a form of questioning God's call, questioning God's capacities to make you what you need to be. Moses, what do you mean you can't speak? I made the tongue. So, so maybe, or it may be, and I've got to hurry, but it may be that John is living out his father's doubt. Remember when we first see Zechariah, John's father, and the angel says, this is going to happen. His father says, eh, tell me how. And maybe now at the end of his life, he's living his father's struggles. Again, I wouldn't have understood that at 30, but as a 46-year-old man, with teenage kids and aging father and having seen my grandfather and grandmother die, that hits me differently. That hits me differently. Or perhaps it's not that at all. Perhaps John is not doubting. He knows his disciples are. And so he asked this question for them. Notice what he says. Are you the one or should we look for another? So maybe John's question isn't his question at all. It's a teacher teaching his disciples by asking a question they need to answer. Perhaps. That's the most common reading, by the way, historically. But I want to suggest to you that it's possible that there's something glorious, something more glorious in his question than in his earlier confession. That as you walk this road that makes you moments in which you, like Isaiah, see the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple and out of you comes a confession of sin. Woe is me, I am undone. And out of you comes a confession of glory. Out of you comes a readiness. Here I am, Lord, send me. 
And you need those moments, not once or twice, but repeatedly in your life. Moments in which you come into the presence of God, you know you're in the presence of God, and you're thrilled to it. Right? Think about the oh holy night. And he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. We need those moments. Those moments in which we are caught up into his glory, transcending ourselves, sensing what we are made for, the joy that's at the end of the road. But John is not a prophet. He's more than a prophet. John doesn't dwell in the palace and the temple. Jesus says, if you were looking for that, you could go to the temple. But you went out into the wilderness to see something more than a prophet. Because the further you go along this road, the more you become like the God who called you to walk this road, the less glory there is and the more suffering. The less sound and fury and the more silence. The less transcending vision and the more deep, deep groaning. And perhaps what's happening here is that John has not lost his faith. It's matured to the point that he can ask the question that all of us share. Are you the one or should we keep looking? I mentioned Pastor Greg on that same Sunday in 590. He said this. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. Imagine yourself in the Basilica in Rome and you're hearing these words. On the banks of the Jordan, John affirmed that Jesus was the redeemer of the world. Once imprisoned, however, he asks if he is the one who must come. Not that he doubts that Jesus is the redeemer, but he wants to know if he who came in person into the world will also go down into hell, into the infernal prisons. John had preceded Christ into the world and announced him there. Now he would die and precede him. Do you hear what he's saying? John is facing death. Death is at the door, and he knows, he wants to know, Jesus, are you coming there too? And then Greg said this. What John meant was, if he had spoken more fully, what he meant was this. Since you, Jesus, humbled yourself to become human for us, say whether you will also humble yourself to die for us and grant that I, who have been the herald of your birth, may also be the herald of your death. Grant that I, who announced your arrival on earth, may announce your arrival in hell. Now that is gospel. That is gospel. That John has walked this road down to its end. This is a path that God made by walking it. And it ends for him as for us at the cross. It may begin in the palace, but it ends in the prison. It may begin by seeing the Lord high and lifted up, but it ends by you being high and lifted up with him on the cross outside the city. In prison, anticipating the move from life to death, from this prison to the prison below. And John, in that prison, Gregory says, is asking, are you going to be not only the one who saves the world by living this life, are you going to be the one who saves the dead by dying your death? If so, let me be the one to announce it. I'm almost done. 
One more, one more detail in this story that bothers me. Why does Jesus not go to John in prison? I know you're, you're, you're too pious. You would never do this. But when I, I'm, I'm thinking Jesus said, this is how he sorts the sheep from the goats. Right? The sheep, what do they do when they hear that someone's in prison? They go and visit. Jesus, that is John in prison. Why don't you practice what you preach? Walk there. He, you know he has this question, why don't you go to him? But here's the answer. You probably already realize it. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 24. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. Jesus doesn't go and visit John in prison because he's in John in prison. What's happening here is that John has walked that road so far and so well that he now is sharing. He's seated with Christ in the heavenly places of intercession that look like the outskirting of the world, that look like the lowest places, because that's where God establishes his throne. He's gone out into the wilderness to become the stream. He does not need someone to bring him a drink. He is the water. And this is the word for you. Some of you, like me, are wondering why God is not visiting you. Because he's inside of you. You are the visitation of God. God does not want you to suffer. God does not want anyone to suffer. But God does want us to go to the suffering. And when the suffering comes to us, he wants us to become the site of his healing, restorative, renewing presence. The reason you're not getting a visitation from God is that you are the visitation of God to everyone around you. Stand up with me. I'm glad that helped two of you. We're going to come to the table. I'm going to pray for you. But hear hear this. Hear this is good news. I don't mean to downplay the pain you're in. I don't mean to downplay the suffering. And I am not saying it's worth it because God will make something of it. What I'm saying instead is that the gospel is telling us that inside the prison of our present experience, whatever it is, God is springing up eternal. And we can sing the song that's meant for the end while we're in the stocks in the prison. I know that because Paul and Silas did it. Here's the thing that makes what they did gospel rather than immature pseudo-gospel. Remember this, they're singing at midnight, probably hill songs or some ancient version of hill songs. And what happens? The earth shakes, right? And the bars fall open. And they don't dance their way out singing victory. When the doors are open and the chains fall away, they stay right there because the streams spring up in the desert. Because if you walk this road long enough, you become the site of God's liberation. Not just someone liberated by God, you become the site of his liberation for others. So some of you, some of us, are praying for God to open the prison, and he will. But don't you dare leave it. Don't you dare leave it. This is what it means to be more than a prophet. This is what it means to be more than a conqueror. You're not meant to be a conqueror. You're meant to be more than that. 
You're not meant to get stronger. You're meant to become weak in the way that God is weak. I want to pray for you. Pastor Andrew, you can come. God, it's hard to talk about these things and believe what we're saying. It's hard for me to talk about them and let it come from that place of conviction. But God, I do believe and help my unbelief in trusting that in this prison, I'm experiencing in the prison that any one of my brothers and sisters are experiencing, you are there. We are your visitation. And when the walls fall down, then we know it's our moment to be present to those who were here with us. But I want to be, I want all of us to be, not conquerors, but more than conquerors. God, I pray you give us the grace to stay on this road you've made and not to fret, not to be afraid. Amen. I love Chris Green for a thousand reasons, but one of them is <laughs> that almost every time I'm with him, I think a new thought. Well, I have not considered that before. And there is... Jesus is with John in prison so that John can bear witness with Jesus in the prison. And I have been in pastoral ministry long enough to know that there's not a single person in this room this morning that doesn't feel like you're in prison in some way. There's something that's locked up for you. And here is the good news of the gospel for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing separates us from his love. And as we abide in the place that God's called us to be, we become his love in that place for others. So church, would you lift up your hands? And as we come to the table, we come calling upon the presence of the Holy Spirit now to help us. As you have been doing the last minutes of our service, you've been teaching us to recognize you. You call us to recognize your presence here in bread and cup. And so we say, open our eyes. Open our eyes. Help us discern the presence of the risen Christ in broken bread and in this cup. And we remember before you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. Here's the ministry of God in the world. Here is the conquering of God in the world. Not a sword, not a crushing of the heads of the enemies, but you tuck yourself into bread and cup and you gave it to your disciples and you said, this is my body, it's broken for you, do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Lord Jesus, bread and cup. We offer them up to you this morning and we ask that you would give them back to us as a highway of holiness, 
as a path that cleans us, that makes us a stream in the desert for others. Grant it, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. I'll invite our servers to come forward this morning uh, to serve communion. Four communion stations up front here. You'll exit your row one by one on the right here, and then you'll come back around and re-enter it on the left-hand side. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God, and they're given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.